This week's episode is sponsored by me. As many of you know, I travel full-time and I am also an author. Twice a year, I open up my coaching program to help new authors write their first book. This year, I'm adding a second program to writers who happen to be stuck in the messy middle and are struggling to finish their book, no matter which one they're on. It's a very personalized group coaching program, and I only take in 12 participants. Enrollment opens soon, so if you're a new writer or a seasoned writer who is struggling to get to the end, this just might be a good fit. Head on over to my website, www.elizabethbougeret.com, for all of the details and an application if you'd like to take the next step. That's www.elizabethbougeret.com. In a time when the growing nation was beginning to spread out, they could no longer ignore the indigenous peoples that were already living and thriving on the land that they desired. They got it into their head that they weren't using the land hardly at all anyway. They could just go somewhere else and waste other land so the booming white population could use it. They decided they had three options. Convert the Indians to law-abiding Christians who looked like them and acted like them, move them off to another territory, the out-of-sight, out-of-mind option, or kill them. I guess the fourth option of leaving them alone and letting them live their life got voted out pretty early on. Killing them was so easy for some, but it gave bad press. Reservations were already in the works and some had already been set into motion. But they soon discovered that you couldn't just blend someone into a new society and culture after hundreds of thousands of years of tradition, unless you started while they were young. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. President Thomas Jefferson would address the Choctaw Nation in 1803, saying, quote, I rejoice, brothers, to hear you propose to become cultivators of the earth for the maintenance of your families. Be assured you will support them better with less labor by raising stock and bread and by spinning and weaving clothes than by hunting. A little land cultivated and a little labor will procure more provisions than the most successful hunt, and a woman will clothe more by spinning and weaving than a man by hunting. Compared with you, We are but as of yesterday in this land. Yet see how much more we have multiplied by industry, and the exercise of that reason which you must possess in common with us. Follow then our example, brethren, and we will aid you with great pleasure. The missionaries had spread out far and wide with a new purpose to bring the poor, uneducated heathen savages a better way of life. The poor dears. They didn't know how to dress properly or eat with utensils. They couldn't read or write and could only grunt or speak gibberish to attempt communication. They had found their calling. 
the missionaries found that some were willing to be taught. The children became bilingual, and they might participate in becoming baptized. But they would spend as much time with the white culture as suited them, and then return to their communal way of life. The boarding school attempt for Indian children began in 1860 when the Bureau of Indian Affairs established the first Indian school on the Yakima Indian Reservation in the state of Washington. In order to civilize the Indians, their traditional beliefs of communal ownership and way of life would be discouraged. Instead, they would be taught the importance of private property, material wealth, and monogamous nuclear families. Christianity would be taught, as well as explaining the principal political structures, promotion of individualism, and becoming economically self-sufficient. But again, by being on the reservation and their students returning to their regular way of life, it was felt that they were not sufficiently removing the influences of tribal life. In 1868, as part of the Fort Laramie Treaty, President Ulysses Grant. Ensured that the federal government's intention was to quote civilize the Native Americans end quote. In Article Seven, it reads quote In order to ensure the civilization of the Indians entering into this treaty, the necessity of education is admitted, especially of such of them as are or may be settled on said agricultural reservations, and they therefore pledge themselves to compel their children. Male and female between the ages of six and sixteen years to attend school. End quote. In 1873, the Board of Indian Commissions argued that the present instruction to the Indians was ineffective. It seemed pointless to waste government money to try and teach the Indians in their day schools because they would just go back home and speak their native tongue. The Senate and Indian Affairs agreed, and also added that they felt the day schools perpetuated the idea that they deserved special treatment instead of quote, preparing him for independent citizenship. End quote. Enter Colonel Richard H. Pratt. Pratt fought throughout the Civil War and was also active in the Indian Wars from 1868 to 1875. Colonel Pratt was assigned to create the charges against those whose actions were outside acceptable warfare. Here he worked to understand the Indian prisoners through interpreters. Even though the Indian Wars had pretty much come to an end, President Grant believed that his prisoners of war should remain prisoners, so he had them moved to Florida permanently. Colonel Pratt was chosen to handle this mission and to stay there and supervise. Pratt took it upon himself to take the mission a step further. He chose a handful of prisoners and began to organize English-speaking classes, art, and a few other industrial-type classes. He would give them exercise by way of marching and military maneuvers. For those who complied, they were given rewards such as positions of authority over others in the group. The handful of participants were removed from the rest of the prisoners. It was a complete immersion into the American ways. Being quite pleased with his successes, he was able to convince the federal government to invest into further development of his original experiment. He first had to convince them that the ways things were being done at present was not working. Quote, A public school, especially for the Indians, builds up tribal pride, tribal purposes, and tribal demands upon the government. 
They formulate the notion that the government owes them a living and vast sums of money, and by improving their education on these lines, leaves them in their chronic condition of helplessness so far as reaching the ability to compete with the white race is concerned. It's like attempting to make a man well by always telling him he is sick. We have only to look at the tribes who have been subject to this influence to establish this fact. All the tribes in the state of New York have been trained in tribal schools, and they are still tribes and Indians, with no desire among the masses to be anything else but separate tribes. End quote. Oh, but wait, there's more. Quote, the five civilized tribes of the Indian Territory, Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, Creeks, and Seminoles, have had tribal schools until it's asserted that they are civilized. Yet they have no notion of joining us and becoming a part of the United States. Their whole disposition is to prey upon and hatch up claims against the government and have the same lands purchased and repurchased and purchased again to meet the recurring wants growing out of their neglect and inability to make use of their large and rich estate. End quote. He presented a boarding school, not a day school, one that would remove the children from their environment and immerse them in a new way of thinking and behaving. He impressed upon his audience the importance of immersion into a new culture. He referenced the slaves that were brought from Africa and how, when they arrived, they could not speak the language and could not possibly be upstanding members of a community, but through immersion, Pratt says, quote, The schools did not make them citizens. The schools did not teach them the language, nor make them industrious and self-supporting. Scattered here and there under the care of the authority of individuals of a higher race, they learned self-support and something of citizenship, and so reached their present place. Left in Africa, surrounded by their fellow savages, our black fellow citizens would still be savages. Transferred into these new surroundings and experiences, behold the result. They became English-speaking and civilized because, forced into association with English-speaking and civilized people, became health and multiplied because they were property, and industrious because industry, which brings contentment and health, was a necessary quality to increase their value. As we have taken into our national family seven millions of Negroes, and we receive foreigners at the rate of more than 500,000 a year, we assimilate them. It would seem that the time may have arrived when we can very properly make at least the attempt to assimilate our 250,000 Indians, using this proven, potent line, and see if it will not end this vexed question and remove from the public attention where they occupy so much more space than they are entitled to, either by numbers or worth, end quote. His words touched a nerve. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School would open in Pennsylvania in 1879. Colonel Richard Pratt would be the superintendent for the next 25 years, and this school would lead the way for over 300 federally funded day and off-reservation boarding schools over the next four decades. In 1892, Captain Richard H. Pratt told an audience at an assembly, quote, A great general said that the only good Indian is a dead one, and that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, 
I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him, and save the man. End quote. This was a solid twenty years since the first Indian boarding school had been opened and run by Captain Pratt, and he was feeling pretty proud of himself at this convention. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. If the Great Spirit wanted me to be white, he would have made me white. Quote from Lakota leader and healer, Sitting Bull. Thousands of students from more than 140 Native American tribes were brought in by trains and unloaded at Carlisle and other Indian boarding schools for the next 40 years. Children were ripped away from their families when they couldn't be convinced. Indian agents who were in charge of the tribe's food and supply rations on each of the reserves were known to withhold rations from the families. Police were sent in to enforce the school policy, forcefully taking children from their parents. It said that the police would continue to take children until the school was filled. So, sometimes orphans were offered up, or families would negotiate a family quota. In 1894, when a group of Hopi men in Arizona refused to send the children to residential schools, 19 of them were taken to Alcatraz Island in California thousands of miles away from their families, and imprisoned for a year. Following the procedures of the prison Colonel Pratt had supervised, the children were brought in and harshly bathed. Their clothing was stripped from their bodies and burned. The boys were given military uniforms to wear, and the girls had to wear Victorian-style dresses with all the undergarments. And the boots. They all had to wear boots. Quote, I was four years old when stolen and taken to Chemawa, Oregon. The matron grabbed me and my sister, stripped off our clothes, laid us in a trough, and scrubbed our genitals with lye soap, yelling at us that we were filthy savages. Dirty. I had to walk on my tiptoes, screaming in pain. Their hair was cut short, and if they wore braids, they were sometimes made an example of in front of others. Their braids were ceremoniously cut off. For the boys, this was an emasculating experience, as their hair and the length represented not only strength and wisdom, but their years on earth. It was also humiliation, as it represented a defeated, captured warrior in many tribal cultures. They were given new English names, first and last. Sometimes a part of their own name would be used, but most times it was a generic, brand new name for them. They were not allowed to speak their native tongues, not even to each other, and with every attempt to do so was reprimanded with physical punishment. A woman of the Hopi tribe would recall, quote, Sometimes the teacher would get a ruler and hit us on the hand or on the leg, and then she would tell the principal and we would get an extra detail to do, like washing dishes or washing the dish towels, end quote. Another student would recall, quote, We didn't know English. They would try and tell us something, and we wouldn't understand, and they would lose their patience and start yelling. We were all crying. End quote. They were stripped, 
of every aspect of where they came from. They were no longer from a tribe. They were Americans. They were not to participate in any kind of ceremonies or traditions or rituals. All of their beliefs would be replaced with Christianity. Quote, I remember being told that what my parents practiced would send them straight to hell where they would burn forever. I was seven years old. That was a terrifying, devastating experience for me. End quote. They would not be eating food they were familiar with. They would use a knife, fork, a spoon, and a napkin. They would not see their parents for months, sometimes years. The worst of examples, the child would not see their home or family from the time they were brought in until they were 18. Sometimes they would never make it home again. Depriving them of everything that gave them their identity, the school could now go to work. But they didn't take into consideration how deep those bonds go. It's who they are. And now they're confused not sure what is happening to them, questioning what they did wrong for such a punishment, wondering where their parents are, afraid, abused, and alone. Children committed suicide or tried to run away. Those that were caught were made an example of. Many were whipped with cords and their wounds paraded through the students as a warning. In some schools, the escape attempts were so common that some schools offered bounties for runaways. A newspaper would print, quote, The temptation to return to their wild life with the savage influences surrounding them is no doubt very strong, end quote. One Navajo historian would say, quote, It more accurately should be called ethnic cleansing rather than assimilation. It had devastating effects on my people, end quote. A Ute son, whose mother was taken away when she was nine, would say, quote, Assimilation affected the Ute in a very tragic way. It was so ineffective. It did not train us to be confident in the white world, and it took us away from our own culture, so much so that we weren't even confident as Indians anymore, end quote. His mother was not returned to her family until she was 18. Historically, Only two groups were segregated from mainstream education systems in America, African Americans and the American Indian. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, That's How Much I Love Their Products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. The children's daily classes did not begin until they understood the rules, which were harshly imposed. Punishments were doled out that included wrapping their knuckles with rulers, solitary confinement, food being withheld, whipping and paddlings, 
One student recalled having to kneel on the concrete outside of the schoolroom and hold a stack of books on straight arms out in front of him. He said, quote, My knees were bleeding, and I remember that I finally blacked out. End quote. Quote, At school, if you made a mistake, there was harsh punishment. You have to learn quickly. To this day, I still get sad about it. End quote. The children were then taught the basics of academia before expanding into other subjects. Sometimes they were never taught more than reading, writing, and arithmetic. Then their education would expand into a trade. At this point, half of the day would be spent in the classroom, the other half would be learning a skill. They had a well-regarded chorus and orchestra, and developed sports programs, which Pratt insisted on to show that they could learn to compete against the white children. In 1916, explaining the curriculum of the Indian boarding school, Directing Chief of Indian Affairs, Cato Sells, would respond to an interview, quote, It emphasizes the study of home economics and agricultural subjects, because any attempt to change the Indian population of this country from a dependent to an independent people within a reasonable length of time must give special consideration to the improvement of the Indians' homes and to the development of their lands, end quote. So, it makes sense, then, that when the school first opened, agriculture and woodworking were the most important trades for the boys. They adjusted to the demands of the outside world as time went on. The girls were taught in various aspects of homemaking, such as sewing, cooking, and washing. February 25, 1916. The North Platte Semi-Weekly Tribune ran an article titled, what the government is doing to make first-class men and women of the sons and daughters of real red men some excellent results. It reads in part, quote, There should be interest in knowing how this course of study for the Indians compares with the course which white children follow. In the first six years, the Indian course parallels the public school course in all the essentials of academic work. Every farm is expected to grow all the crops that it is possible to raise in the localities in which they are situated. Corn, oats, wheat, alfalfa, clover, timothy, and so on. The schools are expected to raise all the potatoes and other vegetables with which to supply the tables of the pupils. The Indian schools prepare the children for vocational and industrial work. They are expected to go back to the places from which they came, there to become self-supporting, to take the same interest in life's work that the white man does, and thus eventually to solve forever what has been known for some centuries of American life as the Indian Problem. Edward P. Clark of the North Platte Tribune. With being self-sufficient and the students doing all the work, the curriculum began to slant more toward the industrial training rather than the academics. The Carlisle School also created a placing out system, which put Indian students in something similar to foster homes for a summer or a year, and then for three years following their graduation. It allowed families to hire help at a low rate, help support the high cost of running a school, but all that was hidden underneath the sales pitch of placing them in a non-Indian environment so they could perfect their skills while out in society. White society. While supervised and strictly disciplined at Carlisle, other outing programs were often exploitive. At the Phoenix Indian School, girls became the major source of domestic labor for white families, Boys were placed in seasonal harvest 
or other jobs unwanted by white or immigrant laborers. The whole purpose was to, yes, allow them to use their skills that they learned from the school, but also to be taught more by the families they were put with, but all too often they were being used as free labor by the foster family and one less mouth to feed at the school. However, by 1900, government subsidies were made to participating families. Pratt believed that this was an extension of their education to make them Americans. Over 1,800 Carlisle students participated in this system. Richard Pratt would report to the Conference of Charities and Corrections in 1892, quote, Carlisle has always planted treason to the tribe and loyalty to the nation at large. It has preached against colonizing Indians and in favor of individualizing them. It has demanded for them the same multiplicity of chances which all others in the country enjoy. Carlisle fills young Indians with the spirit of loyalty to the Stars and Stripes and then moves them out into our communities to show by their conduct and ability that the Indian is no different from the white or the colored, that he has the inalienable right to liberty and opportunity that the white and the Negro have. In turn, he will recognize fully that he is capable in all respects as we are, and that he only needs the opportunities and privileges which we possess to enable him to assert his humanity and manhood. When we act consistently toward him, in accordance with that recognition, when we cease to fetter him in conditions which keep him in bondage, surrounded by retrogressive influences, when we allow him the freedom of association and the developing influences of social contact, then the Indian will quickly demonstrate that he can truly be civilized, and he himself will solve the question of what to do with the Indian." Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. An accurate record has not been discovered to tell us the exact amount of students who went through the various boarding schools. It is estimated that over 60,000 went through this type of program by 1973. Indian students were ravaged by disease at boarding schools. The unmarked graves in the cemeteries on the school's properties tell us that they did not keep very good records, and once some of the bodies had started to be reinterred back to the families they came from, it was discovered that there was sometimes more than one body in the grave, and the bodies didn't always match the name on the headstone. The cemetery at Carlisle was relocated in 1927 to add a paved parking lot, and many of the bodies were never moved, or moved incorrectly. But luckily, many have returned to their families. Unsanitary conditions, poor building maintenance, and overcrowding fueled communicable diseases such as tuberculosis, pneumonia, trachoma, and smallpox, especially among students weakened by trauma and meager rations. Just as an example, 1891, in the new school in Carson City, Nevada, an outbreak of mumps took down most of the student body that first January. In the meantime, Pratt's vision was becoming a reality. Native languages were unspoken and forgotten. Traditions and culture were becoming a thing of the past. The past, present, and future were being questioned in the minds of the students. They were confused, 
their parental bond was broken and everything they'd been told was right was now deemed wrong. Over the years, the school's alumni would report widespread neglect, physical abuse, mental and emotional abuse, even sexual abuse, and then suicide. On paper, Pratt's theories were working. In the real world, his theories were definitely not working. In 1928, the U.S. government commissioned what is now known as the Miriam Report, a comprehensive update on the state of Native American affairs. It was comprised by a team of 10 experts in various fields in education, women's health, family life, sociology, and so on. This book of findings tore up the way the school was run and the treatment of the Native Americans. It condemned, for example, the destruction of their family life, saying, quote, The tendency has been rather toward weakening Indian family life and community activities than toward strengthening them. The long-continued policy of removing Indian children from the home and placing them for years in boarding school largely disintegrates the family and interferes with developing normal family life, end quote. It goes on to say later, quote, The service is notably weak in personnel trained and experienced in educational work with families and communities. The result is almost total absence of well-developed programs. Oh, Oh, wait, there's more. Hang on. Quote, the first and foremost need in Indian education is a change in point of view. Whatever may have been the official government attitude proceeded largely on the theory that it is necessary to remove the Indian child as far from possible from his home environment. The Indian educational enterprise is peculiarly in need of the kind of approach that recognizes this principle that it is less concerned with a conventional school system and more with the understanding of human beings. The teacher must be free to gather material from the life of the Indians about her so that the little children may proceed from the known to the unknown and not be plunged all at once into a world where all is unknown and unfamiliar. End quote. Oh, I could kiss these people. It goes on to recommend better diet, less overcrowding, less heavy productive work, more thorough physical examination, industrial education should be materially improved, and the half-day plan with its large amount of non-educational productive labor tend to materially reduce the efficiency of the boarding schools as educational institutions. The promising Indian boy or girl who has attended an Indian boarding school and who desires to go on with his education should not encounter any educational barrier because of the limitation of the Indian boarding schools. The faculties and their course of studies should be such that they can meet the standards set for accredited high schools. A policy of placing Indian children in public schools near their homes instead of boarding schools or even in Indian service day schools is to be commended. It is a movement in the direction of the normal transition. End quote. The report took on the poor health of the children and the harsh punishments, the lack of nutrition, and being overworked and sickly. They were demoralized and not being educated. Enough is enough. The schools began a slow change. 
and today there are still a handful of Indian boarding schools that are now heavily run by the Native American tribes and include their native language, culture, and history. And the children and parents can choose to attend. Indians suffered a great loss in their culture and language and family bonds. In future generations, some parents refused to allow their children to learn the language of their tribe because it was instilled in them that it was wrong. Many Indian children were neither accepted into American society nor were they able to return home into a traditional Indian society. Some turned their back on their native history and gave themselves over to the white world, trying to mold and adapt to that world. Others took the training and brought it back to their native communities to help improve their way of life, or adapted and took their American education out into the world and did amazing things representing their tribes. If I was thinking fairly and giving Colonel Pratt the benefit of the doubt, I believe this might have been his underlying hope. But I'm not feeling that generous yet, and I'm still mad at him for taking away the children in the first place. In 2009, President Barack Obama signed the Native American Apology Resolution, in which it apologizes that, quote, there have been years of official depredations and the breaking of covenants for the, quote, many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflected, and for past, quote, ill-conceived policies toward the native peoples of this land and reaffirm our commitment toward healing our nation's wounds and working together establishing better relationships rooted in reconciliation, end quote. It also includes a disclaimer that the resolution did not, quote, authorize or support any legal claims against the United States and the resolution does not settle any claims against the United States, end quote. Fair. It also goes on to say, quote, Despite the wrongs committed against Native peoples by the United States, Native peoples have remained committed to the protection of this great land as evidenced by the fact that on a per capita basis, more Native peoples have served in the United States Armed Forces and placed themselves in harm's way in defense of the United States in every major military conflict than any other ethnic group, end quote. And that is a fact that still holds true today. Dr. Jennifer Nez Denetdol, a Navajo historian, says, quote, Native Americans, including the Navajo people, are some of the most patriotic people in the United States. I believe that it is part of the process of the American assimilation, and so it's very difficult to separate our sense of who we are as citizens of our respective and distinctive tribal nations and being citizens of the United States, end quote. Side note, a young Navajo student that was sent away from his family to a boarding school recalls being scolded for attempting to speak his language. He'd say, quote, brown soap. If they heard you talking native language, they'd smash it right into your face. It was bitter. Brown soap was bitter, end quote. Dan Aki would go on to serve his country in World War II as a code talker. For those of you who are not familiar with the term code talker, this was a group of Navajo that used their native language, the one that was attempted to be stolen away by the boarding schools, to send coded messages. Different languages were sometimes used, like a different Indian word from different tribes. 
For example, the Cherokee word for car would be used, and then the Sioux word for north would be used, or maybe the Seminole word for watercraft. The military recruited hundreds of Native Americans to help build and execute the code. The codes could not be broken, and it is believed that it was vital to the success of the war. Side note to the side note, most don't realize that there were code talkers in World War I as well. They were uniquely from the Cherokee and Choctaw tribes. One grandchild from a boarding school survivor wrote, quote, One thing we have to keep in mind, front and center, is despite all of the attempts to rip everything away, we are still here. And as hard hit as language and ceremony and culture and identity has been, they weren't able to erase it. It still remains. End quote. Another wrote, quote, in many ways, it did the reverse. It strengthened our culture and our relationships with other tribes, end quote. Dr. Nez Dinetdol gets the final word here. She says, quote, When we remember the stories of their experiences, we remember the children who died there and never returned home. Many of them not only died from sickness and diseases, but they also died from loneliness and heartbreak. Their stories remind us that we should always do better and that we should always cherish and love our children. They are the next generation. End quote. The headlines would read, quote, Savage Hopi Indians are transformed into model students. This would be released to the world after Carlisle student Louis Tawanamiya of the Hopi Nation would place ninth in the 1908 Summer Olympic Games in London. If you let me give the Bag of Bone supporters a chance to shine for just a moment, I'll be right back and give you this whole sad yet inspiring story. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. It was a chilly morning in November of 1908 when the Indian agents forced their way into the Hopi reservation, seizing the children that had long avoided being sent away to boarding school. The younger children were taken directly to Carlisle and other locations while the teenagers were marched 20 miles east while shackled to Keems Canyon, where they were forced to build a road. 
Then in January, they were marched over 100 miles to reach Fort Wingate, New Mexico, where a train would take them to their final destination, Carlisle Indian Boarding School in Pennsylvania. There, his hair was cut short, his clothes were burned, and he was given his new English name, Lewis. He did not adapt well to his new surroundings and rebelled often. Not long after arriving, he and two other boys ran away. They were able to catch a train, or several trains depending on the story, that would get them all the way to Amarillo, Texas. Having come such a long way, they thought their escape successful. There they met a man who offered to buy them some food. They accepted only to find out that he was a sheriff, and they were soon jailed until they could be boarded on the next train back to Pennsylvania. They were less than 500 miles away from their home. Running is a spiritual experience for the Hopi tribe as well as a necessity. They were a smallish community of farmers and herders compared to their nomadic Navajo neighbors. They did not have access to horses and would run for miles to acquire water for their crops and for drinking. So when Lewis was lost and away from his home, he turned to what he knew, running. His natural skill was not lost on the educators of the school, and it wasn't long before they started entering Lewis into races. He became known for his unmatched long-distance running among his collegiate competitors, and it was in 1908 he was chosen to represent the United States at the Summer Olympics held in London. The stories would say that he did not handle sea travel well and was seasick every time, but he was stoic and believed that if he did this one little thing for the United States, he would be allowed to return home to his people. July 24, 1908. The day was considered hot and humid. For reference, most of the Hopi tribes are located in today's Arizona and New Mexico. Hot, yes, but a dry heat. Tawanama was not used to so much moisture in the air. But he came to the starting line with 54 competitors and Windsor Castle standing in the distance. At first, Tawanama held back as the rest of the marathoners bolted forward. By the 12th mile, many had dropped out from exhaustion and heat, and Tawanama made his way closer to the front of the crowd. His feet were aching and his head was spinning, but was greeted by enthusiastic fans when he entered the Olympic Stadium in Shepherd's Bush. He had finished in ninth place. He was hoping to go back to his family, but instead returned to Carlisle and was used to promote the school by posing in pictures for the media. In 1912, Louis Tawanema and Jim Thorpe, another Carlisle student and an amazing athlete in his own right, both competed in the Summer Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden he would set an American record for running the 10,000-meter event in 32 minutes, 6.6 seconds, coming in second and claiming the silver medal for America. This record would not be broken for another 52 years when Billy Mills and Oglala Lakota Sioux took the gold medal at the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. Again, Lewis was taken back to Carlisle, where they basked under the celebration and the constant press of his achievements. Finally, in September of that same year, he was allowed to return to his home. He wasted no time returning to the traditions of his people. 
He herded sheep and tended crops, refused to speak English or give interviews. He did end up marrying and having a single daughter, Rose. Rose was sent away to boarding school as well, but she became deathly ill and returned to her family for burial. Although he refused most who wanted to interview him, he did agree to go to New York at the age of 66. In 1954, the Helms Athletic Foundation honored him as a member of the all-time U.S. track and field team, and in 1957, he was inducted into the Arizona Sports Hall of Fame. He lived a good life with the Hopi tribe, becoming a ceremonial chief. When he was 81 years old, he was walking in the darkness, and it's believed that he became confused. He walked off the edge of a 70-foot cliff, where he fell to his death. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. If you enjoyed this episode, or any for that matter, could you please leave a five-star review on the Apple platform or any of the others that allow reviews and ratings? This really helps to get our name bumped up in the rankings. And also, if you'd like to support the show, please consider buying a gallon of gas or shopping with any of our sponsors. If this is your first episode or 50th, I'm so happy that you're here. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'll see you next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.